we're taking a, a one-week break in Matthew, and then we'll jump right into Passion Week. Um, Jesus approaches uh, the cross and his suffering, his death, and then his resurrection as we celebrate that in Easter. Um, but for the one-week break, what do I, what do I what preach on? What do I want to talk about? Uh, for many of you, especially the members, you know that this year we want to focus on evangelism. Evangelism is that task of bringing the gospel to people who don't, have not heard the gospel or don't understand the gospel or reject the gospel. The gospel being the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, that you deserve death, that we deserve death, we all deserve, uh, that's the wages of our sin. And Jesus came and lived the perfect life that we failed to live and then he died the death that we should have died so that we can be folded under him as our substitute and then be brought back into relationship with God the Father. Amen? Well, that's the message that we carry, um, but it's a very disheartening endeavor, oftentimes. Um, I, I'm just curious. I don't want anybody to share any names or anything like that. Just, I want you to slip your hand up if there's someone, at least one person in your life, that you've at least one time thought, there's no, there's no way they would ever give their lives to Jesus. They're just, they just either don't want to or don't get it or they just hate the church or whatever reason there's just for some reason there's one person at least that i'm thinking of that there's just it just seems like there's just no way has anyone ever felt that way okay when you feel that way it's it's tough to keep going we kind of tend to put that person on the shelf maybe cross them off the prayer list you can't pray for everybody maybe i'll pray for people who are a little more likely you know, maybe I'll pray for people that are a little bit more loosened up toward it. Maybe they're a little more open toward it. I'll spend more time praying for those persons. Why spend all my time praying for someone that's just so angry, uh, just so hesitant, just so um, s- s- such a uh, stalwart, you know, in terms of being against anything that has to do with the gospel. Um, and I think it's tempting for us to give up. What I want to say this morning is that for us to give up, even on someone like that, is bad theology. It's a bad way of thinking about God. It's the wrong way of thinking about evangelism. So what I want to talk about today is, let's get a a better understanding of salvation in order to have a proper understanding of evangelism. Why? Because evangelism is is the task of proclaiming the message to people by which they might be saved. Believe this message and and put faith into this message, then they're saved. So evangelism is everything to do with salvation, but if we have a wrong understanding of salvation, we'll have a wrong understanding of evangelism. We raise our hands and go, man, yeah, there's people like that in my life. I just... I don't talk to them about the gospel anymore. It just is a waste of time. I don't really pray for them that much anymore. Um, It's because we have a faulty understanding of the name. So to do that, I want to go to Ephesians chapter 2. Is that something on my end with the mic? or No? We're not sure? All right. We'll roll with it. Ephesians chapter 2. Familiar passage. Sue shared a couple of those verses with us. Uh, Many of us have memorized... Um, a couple of these verses in this, in this portion, specifically verses 8 and 9. But I want to look at verses 1 through 10. 
Now here, here's what Paul does. In these ten verses, he explains the gospel. The gospel, gospel means good news. But the good news always comes with bad news. We've talked about that before. Okay? Um, he gives the bad news first in verses 1 through 3. Let's look at it. He's talking to the Ephesians. They're Christians. It's a church in, in, the, in Ephesus. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now we so often just barrel right through those verses and try just get to the part about grace. Let's just get to the part about, you know, uh, the gift uh, of God that saves us and about being His workmanship and all that. You can't. Paul specifically didn't want to jump straight into that. And they're not even in this situation anymore, but he wants to remind them that they once were in this situation. So what was that situation that they were in? Because when you think of loved ones, friends, co-workers that have not grasped the gospel yet, what Paul is saying is they're still in this situation. He says they're dead in the trespasses and sins in what you once walked. They're, they're dead. Now, they show up at work, they punch in, they punch out, they eat lunch, sometimes they go to lunch with you, you know, or they're family members, they come over for family reunions, they're there, they're talking, they, you, you know, I mean, they're, they're alive, so in what sense are they dead? Well, they're spiritually dead. That's why they don't grasp the gospel. You're like, oh my goodness, it's so clear, how do you not get it? Because they're dead. I had a professor in seminary once, and uh, I knew he was going to take the group out uh, for, to, to show them something. I didn't know what he was going to show them. And I, for some reason, I couldn't make it that class. So the next class, I asked, so where did you guys go? What, what did he do? He said, uh, but, well, the, the students told me, well, he took us to a cemetery. And it was a preaching class. To a cemetery. Uh, actually, it was Erwin Lutzer. I don't know if some of you have uh, heard his program on, on WMBI, Running to Win, pastor of Moody Church downtown. So Erwin Lutzer, our class to the cemetery i didn't get to and he literally asked the students to he pointed at one of the graves and told the students tell that person to get up tell that person to get out and they looked at each other. is this what we're paying you for man <laughs> you know? tell that person to get out how about you you try it how about that person that's not that big of a grave go ahead try try that person how about instead of not just multiple graves, just one? Have this person get up. And obviously, they can't. And his point was, when you stand up there preaching and there's people out there not giving their lives to the Lord, they're dead. And it's not going to be your awesome introduction. It's not going to be, what if I use a different translation? It's not going to be, what if I preach a shorter sermon? What if I preach a longer sermon? You can't do it. You cannot affect a change in someone that's dead. And so when we evangelize people and they're not coming to the Lord, we can't, we can't get into this trap of thinking, maybe I should have evangelized longer. Maybe I should have said something shorter. Maybe I used too harsh of language. Maybe I need to use bigger language, smaller language. Maybe I should pitch it at a this grade level or that grade level. Maybe I didn't use their, you know, their kind of language. Maybe I should take them to 
time. You know, it, it's not based on what we can do because they're dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins. I mean, it, it's, it, you weren't sick. You weren't weak. You weren't like hobbling along, limping. Flatline. There's no sign of life there, spiritually. And you all once walked in that. What are the things that put us in that position? Look at the things he says in verse 2. Following the course of this world. This is what the world is like. This is how the world is. This is what movies portray. This is what the politicians say. This is what Hollywood is yelling about. And so I'll roll with it. Following the prince of the power of the air, there's something spiritual going on behind the scenes that we don't see, that we don't give credence to, that we tend to not pay attention to because we can't see it. Just kind of like the air. You know, it's there, but we don't really see it. But we see the effects of it. And one of the effects of what Satan and his demons are doing behind the scenes is keeping people trapped, keeping people enslaved, making sure that they continue to follow the course of this world. We can't just blame the world and we can't just blame Satan because he says um, in verse 3, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So we're kind of set up in a situation where we're surrounded by world system that, has, that it rejects Christ. We are in a situation where there are spiritual realities that are tempting, luring, setting traps, setting temptations. But at the end of the day, we have our own desires inside of us. Why is that temptation so tempting? Because of my, the own, my own passions rising within me. And who carries it out? I do. I carry it out. That's what he says. We all live there. Of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. There's not some people that are born into wrath and other people that, are God, you know, that, that deserve wrath. We're all in this situation. Because everyone follows the course of the world. Everyone follows the desires of their flesh. Everyone carries out the desires of their flesh. Eleanor's already throwing tantrums. She doesn't get something. She slams the table. What is that? What happened, Eleanor? You were like cute. <laughs> and you get all red in the face and slamming the table. Who taught, who taught her that? She already has those passions inside of her. And we are all by nature, children of wrath. Um, we follow our natural instincts. Now it's interesting when we see that, that we're children of wrath by nature. It's like, well, if I'm following my natural instincts, if I'm following my natural instincts, how can I be culpable? How can I be blamed for something? How can I be responsible for something? I'm just following my natural instincts. Well, that question doesn't really make any sense because we don't carry it out into any other area of life. Uh, you come home and your dog chewed the furniture. Do you say, oh, good boy, that's just your instinct. I paid $2,000 for that at Walter E. Smith. But now your little claw marks, teeth marks are all over. Your little fangs dug in there and destroyed the mahogany. I love that. You're just doing your instinct, buddy. No, you discipline the dog. Teach them that that's not right. Buy them a new toy. Thing. Do something to show them, to dissuade them that that's not the right thing to do. If you leave any kind of food on the dog is great. He's a great dog.
If you leave anything unattended, it's, just, it's gone. It could be meat, donuts. It could be anything edible. It's gone. He just, and then you come in, and when I walk in, do you think he's just wagging his tail? Because, hey, that was my instinct. It was his instinct to eat it, but as soon as I walk in, it's tail between the legs, and he, he knows he did something. In fact, maybe I didn't even see what he did. I see him first. I'm like, all right, what's missing? What do you eat? It's by instinct, right? If we do something, we're naturally bent and naturally inclined to do something. When we do that something, because we were naturally inclined to do it, doesn't make us, uh, doesn't get us off the hook. It doesn't. That's why you know in the um, the the whole debate of homosexuality, the you know, the gay community, they're trying their best to try to get uh, statistics. It's behind the claim that you're born with this. And I'm of the persuasion, first of all, I don't think they've proved that anywhere close. But even if they do, that, that's not the trump card. What if I'm genetically predisposed to alcoholism? That it's okay? It's okay for me to get drunk? It's okay for me to drive around drunk? Should I have a card that says, hey, I was born with it, officer? You know? No, no. We can be naturally inclined towards certain things inclined to be an angry person do i have the right to flip chairs and kick people no so rightness wrongness has nothing to do with what we're naturally inclined to do or naturally not inclined to do there has to be objective moral standards outside of what we're naturally or not naturally inclined to do that tells us and by nature we're wired we we're wired to worship god but by nature the wiring is short-circuited that's what happened in the fall we're bent we're crooked we follow the desires of our flesh. We carry it out. At the end of the day, we're the ones that carry it out. Verse 3, just like the rest of mankind. He's not just saying, just you Ephesians, you weirdos, you know, everyone across all time. This is a universal problem, universal bad news. But then, the good news in verse 4. But... You were in this situation and you were dead, unresponsive, no signs of life. But, verse 4, God, I just want to pause there a second. Not but you changed your mind. Not but you educated yourself a little more. Not you finally got it. Not but you. But God, someone else had to step into the picture here. Someone else had to enter your story for your story to change. And it wasn't the dead person that suddenly, I'm going to make myself alive now. A dead person can't make themselves alive. Someone from the outside has to come in and affect that change in them. So the good news begins not with us, but you started going to church. But you started figuring things out. You were able to put two and two together, but your neighbor still lost. He's not so good with logic. That's not, that's not it. But God, God steps in, being rich in mercy, not a little bit of mercy, his wealth of mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. So why does God step in? Love. How is he able to do it? His mercy. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. When God says to a grave, get up, 
the grave opens. Because he's God. I mean, I can't do it. You can't do it. But God can. And that was Dr. Lutzer's point to the preachers. You need to depend on God to do the work of the Spirit. It's not going to be your awesome sermons. It's going to be the Spirit moving. doesn't mean we don't prepare our sermons. And it certainly doesn't mean we don't talk to people about Jesus. Why should I talk to my neighbor about Jesus? God's going to do it. God, in His richness of His mercy, steps in while we're dead in our trespasses and makes us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So when he, he, he's emphasizing this, this thing about grace. He even interrupts his own sentence in verse 5. He made us alive together with Christ, and then by grace you have been saved. I want to make this clear. It's by grace you have been saved. Then he goes back, and then he raised us up with Christ. He wants to make it clear that it's by grace. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Why is God doing this? So God can show off his grace. So God can show how amazing His grace is. So that when we're all in heaven and we're looking back, how in the world did we get here? I was dead. I was in my trespasses. I had no inclination toward worshiping God whatsoever. And He stepped in. God, You are a God of grace. You are a God of mercy. It had nothing to do with me. It had nothing to do with what I can do. I didn't muster up faith. You gave it to me. That is amazing. But God stepped in. He's the one that made the change. Raised us up with Him. Seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, verse 7, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness. We tend to think of it in terms of measurement. You remember the, the laborers in the vineyard? Some of them worked for 12 hours. Some of them worked for 9 hours. Some of them work for one hour, and they all got paid the same. And when you're listening to that story, you're like, man, that, that, that foreman or whatever is a crook. Well, how would you pay the guy that worked one hour the same thing you paid the guy that worked 12 hours? How can you pay them a full day? They only worked one hour. And Jesus said, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is what God is like. It doesn't matter if you lived an entire life of being a missionary, or you lived a horrible life in the last minute, you gave your life to the Lord on your deathbed. They both get heaven? How is that possible? Because God's grace is immeasurable. You can't break your ruler out. You know, you can't get a measuring long enough to figure it out. You can't quantify. There's not a blackboard long enough to try to quantify with math God's grace. You cannot measure His grace. It is immeasurable. And it comes from the storehouses of His riches. He says in verse 8, For by grace, again, for by grace, grace is unmerited favor. Grace is something you get that's good that you didn't deserve. You deserve something else, but you got this instead. You didn't earn this, but you got it anyway. That's why it's grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. In other words, oh, through faith? Oh, so I had to supply my own faith. I had to come to the table with my faith. I had to figure out faith. No. It is not of your own doing. In fact, if there was anything you did that you brought to the table, 
even 1% or 0.5% that you were involved in this in some way where you said, I see, but God opened the door, but I walked through. No, because then that'd be kind of 50-50. And God doesn't want to do that because then it would, it would lower the measure of his grace because it was a little bit less grace that was needed because it was some grace and some work. Some grace and something that you did. Something he did and something you did. And he doesn't want to share that. So therefore, it's all something God does and nothing that you do. He says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. If someone gives you a gift and then you tell them, how much do I owe you? That's offensive. You're offending that person by saying, how, how much do I owe you? But sometimes we're uncomfortable with gifts. We're uncomfortable with gifts. Somebody at Christmas rolls around and someone gives you a gift and you're like, oh, thank you. And then you close the door and you're like, hon, we didn't get them anything. That drives you nuts. Because now you feel like, oh my goodness, I'm in this position of owing them. They thought of me and I didn't think of them. I'm horrible. I got to get them something. And, and we play these games. Where it's like, well, they got me a sweater last year, so I'll, I'll get them a shirt. You know, I'll get them a sweater or whatever. Oh, they got me this. I got to step up my game and get them that. You know, we want to do tit for tat because it's almost like a gift exchange. Someone shows up at the, what do you call that? When people sit in a circle and everyone showed up with a gift, the white elephant thing. I don't know why they call it that. It's, I don't know what that is. But anyway, they sit around in this weird pagan tradition. <laughs> I know. Someone doesn't show up, but they want to receive the benefit of a gift, but they didn't bring a gift. Oh. You know? Those aren't gifts, guys. That's an exchange. A gift is when I give you something. What's that for? It's not for anything. That was, that's what makes it a gift. He says it is the gift of God, not a result of works. In other words, there's nothing that you did to work it, to earn it, to attain it, to achieve it, to get it. There's nothing that you did. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. That's why. God wants all the boasting rights. All of it. He doesn't want some of it. He doesn't want most of it. All of it. He doesn't want anyone in heaven to be able to say, yeah, you did most of that, but hey, remember when I stepped in? No. All you had was nothing because you were dead. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. God created us. He didn't just save us and, and rise us from the dead and make us spiritually alive for nothing. It's for a purpose. So we can work in His kingdom. So we can do things that glorify Him. Do the things that please Him. Do the things that we were unable to do before because we were dead. Now we can do those things. We can do righteous works. We can do righteous works to earn salvation. But now that we've got salvation, it shows itself in the fact that now we're free to do those righteous things. Now, (laughs) Paul then really just blows the door off the hinges on our thinking on this. And I want to be careful how I, how I step into this area of theology. Because I don't know where every single one of you are on, on this issue. I want to explain to you how I think is, that Scripture makes clear. But look, notice what he says. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The good works that we produce after we've been saved have been produced beforehand. God already prepared those things beforehand. 
Before when? Before when? Right? When, when you're looking at that, you're like, what do you mean beforehand? Be, before the faith that he gave me? I think that's the most natural reading of the text. Before God said, get up out of your grave. He already had works prepared that you would already do. That means God already knew that you were going to be one who's going to produce those works. And in fact, God already prepared those works. In Philippians, he tells the Philippians, hey, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works them in you. So there's this weird sense in which, yes, I'm responsible to respond before God and do things, but at the end of the day, when I look back all the things that I did, I can't go look what I did because God was the one that worked those in me. And so what Paul is saying in this passage, you guys don't get it. You guys don't get it. It's a gift. It's grace. It's grace. Yeah, I get it. He helped me. No. It's completely a gift. Right, right. He opened the door and I stepped in. No, no, no. You You don't understand. Before you were even alive, God already prepared what you were going to do. I want to take you to the chapter previous to this to unpack this a little bit better. So I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 1. We didn't put it up on the screen because that would be super lazy if we couldn't just flip back one page. All right. So let's flip back to Ephesians chapter 1 and look at a couple of verses here that it should blow our minds. I mean, it really, if it doesn't, Maybe get a different translation. I'm not sure what to tell you. I mean, it, it is just, if I were writing my own religion, there's no way I could have ever thought of this. He says in verse 3, after introducing him and giving his greeting, here's his introduction to the whole letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him when we gave our lives to Him. Nope. Even as He chose us in Him when we decided, you know what, I'm going to have faith. No. When did God choose us? When did God make the decision to say, Lucas, get out of that grave right now. You're alive now. When did God make that decision before the foundation of the world? It so has nothing to do with anything I do that it's already been handled before I do anything. That, I mean, <laughs> does that compute? I mean, that, that is so mind-boggling that when Scripture talks about the gospel as mysterious, you see why. Who can figure these things out? Who could have guessed that? Who could have known that? This was revealed to Paul. That before the world was created, before Jesus created the heavens and the earth and all that's in it, we were already chosen to be folded into Christ and into the redemption plan, and all the good works that we would produce were already prepared beforehand. You're like, Pastor, this sounds a lot like predestination. And I don't believe in predestination. Yes, you do. Because your Bible has verse 5 in it. It says, in love he predestined us. Calvin didn't make up that word. I didn't make up that word. There's a theologian sitting in a seminary one day. Let's come up with a term that just really, you know, just really nails it. Paul used the term. And it means what it says. You know, well, I bet if we go behind the Greek, I'll go behind the Greek. Destination or a preset. 
chosen beforehand. I mean, the explanation is right there. Before he even used the word, he already explained it to you. That before the foundation of the world, he plucked you. He chose you. So you didn't figure it out. You didn't just look at the clouds and go, yeah, I get it, I get it. You were dead in your trespasses. And then God said, there's a time where God said, rise up. And he did it. And he doesn't want to share any of that with anyone. Nobody can boast about that. Yeah, I got myself out of the grave. You see how quickly I popped up out of that grave? They couldn't keep me down. No, you kept yourself down real good because you were dead in your own trespasses and your own sins. Carrying out the desires of your flesh. Now, why would God do that? Look at verse 5. He predestined us. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons. I mean, this, we could just go all day. I mean, do you adopt yourself? Does a little kid go, hey, um, can you adopt me? Thanks. No, you're just sitting there as an orphan, and then a family comes in and says, you're mine. That's it. You might go kicking and screaming. You may not like it. You may not like, like moving out to the suburbs or whatever happens to you, but you're in, bub. That's adoption. I mean, all of the, 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 the words, the languages he uses, it just makes it so clear. You had nothing to do with it. There's nothing you brought to the table. All your righteousness was as filthy rags. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of His will. Not according to the purpose of your will or what you wanted or how you wanted things to be. According to His will. I want John Lewis, so I'm picking John Lewis. It doesn't matter what his background is. Boom. I want Tina. I want Tina to be in my fold. It doesn't matter what her background is, what, her, what the story is behind her family. I'm, I'm taking her. I mean, when Tina shares her testimony, and someone please take her to lunch and have her share it, you'll be blown away if you don't know her story yet. Given the circumstances in her life, it doesn't make any sense that she's sitting where she's sitting right now. It makes zero sense that she's there. But God says, get up. But God, not but Cynthia, not but Lucas, not but Pastor Mark Joe, but if God stepped in, and that's it. And in heaven, no one's going to say, but I, I was a little bit better than my cousins. I was a little bit better. You know, when I lived on 26th Street or whatever, I was a little bit better than the gangbangers that are all dead in your trespasses. But something happened before God even spoke the world to exist. He made a choice. He knew that it would become a mess. He knew that we would, in our trespasses and in our sins, alienate ourselves from Him. And he chose persons that no other way would ever select him. He selected them to be adopted into the family according to the purpose of his will, his decision. Verse 6, why? To the praise of his glorious grace so that his grace gets praised forever. That's why. Any other way, it would be grace would be praised and our will would be praised a little bit. But he wants to set it up in a way that forever, all we can do is like the 20 elders in Revelation 4 where they take their crowns that, that have been given to them and they just throw them at the feet of the Lamb and they say, you created everything. You created all things. All things are under you. All things are by you, for you, to you. What on earth am I doing with a crown on my head? Even the things that I've done on this earth that you've rewarded me for. When the Master says, well done, good and faithful servant, our only response is, you're the good and faithful servant because you're the one that worked it in me. If you didn't me, I'll just be trash. But you did it. And therefore the Lamb gets glory forever and the, the, his, his grace gets praised for eternity 
Because if it were not for His grace, 100% relying on His grace, we would not be there. To the praise of His glorious grace, verse which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Referring to Jesus. In In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. According to what? How do we have that forgiveness? According to the riches of His grace. Again, verse 8, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Listen, look at verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of His will. According to His purpose. He made His mystery, the mystery of His will, He made it known to us. It had to be made known to us. It, it, we couldn't figure it out. We couldn't climb the ladder of logic and, and then grasp it. He had to make it known. If he didn't make it known, it would stay a mystery and we would all be lost. But he made it known. He's the one that enlightened. He known to us according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him, in Jesus Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. All things are worked according to His counsel, according to His purpose. There's no oops. God doesn't own a mop. He doesn't need paper towels to clean up messes. He, he, he doesn't have to go, ah, oh, I messed it this way, but they made it go that way, so let me just roll that into that's called process theology where god is in process with his people it's not right god is not it out along with us before the foundation of the world it's it there's a blueprint there and that doesn't mean we don't have choice it just means that certain things are set up so that he inclines some of us to, to make that choice we're not robots but he's not just Biting his nails like, I wonder what's going to happen. Are some people going to be saved? Or no, is no one going to be saved? Would be saved if God didn't step in with his grace. Says the purpose, verse 12, chapter 1, verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Listen to this. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who was the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. When you gave your life to Christ, when you were saved, God gave you the Holy Spirit and this Holy Spirit is a seal which guarantees your delivery in heaven. Now, I grew up with a lot of people around me and myself influenced by this until later I read more scripture, honestly, thinking that you can lose your salvation. You, you, you can be in, you can be out, you can be saved, you can be unsaved. Why? Because in understanding it was that you take a hold of salvation, you can let go of salvation. And then you can take it again if you want. And then you go, no, I want to take a, f- a couple years and take a break and then let go of salvation and go live however you want. And then, you know what, I want to repent and take it. Now it's risky though. Because in one of those time-out moments, what if Jesus comes back or what if you die? So it's risky, but you can lose salvation, gain salvation, reject salvation, whatever. You can be kicked out. But if salvation has nothing to do with your choice, is 100% God's choice, then it is impossible to lose it. If it is impossible to lose it, then you can speak of the Holy Spirit as a seal. 
What good is a seal if it could just be broken? What good is a guarantee if it's not really a guarantee? If you go to a business and they say this is guaranteed to work for a year at least, guaranteed, it better work. That should be a promise. And when God makes a promise and says that the Holy Spirit residing in you is a guarantee it's going to be seen through the end. You go, what if I mess up? What if I'm, God is going to keep you. You're going to persevere. If you've really given your life to Christ, if you've really been adopted as a son, you don't get unadopted as a son. Together, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, why does God set it up this way? Why does God do it this way? So that He gets glory in Christ. You see that in verse 12 right here, chapter 1, verse 12. So that we, so that, this is the purpose, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In other words, if it was set up any other way where you had something to do with it, He would get less praise and glory. But because He is 100% the initiator of this, the actuator of this, the executor of this, 100%, He gets 100% of the share in glory. He says in verse 14, who is the guarantee, the Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, comma, to the praise of His glory. Jesus said, all those that are in my hand, no one's going to pluck them from them. No, no one's going to rob sheep from me because I'm the good shepherd. I'm not a lazy shepherd. I'm not a shepherd that, oh, I got distracted. Oh, somebody stole a sheep. They're my sheep. And no one comes to me unless the Father draws them. Jesus said that. We're all blind like zombies. Zombie. And then suddenly we're able to see. How did that happen? Did I get an education? Did I, well, what is this? Something in me that was righteous enough? No. I'm a zombie, next minute I'm healed, and I'm alive, and I step away from the zombies, and I join up with other brothers. How, how does that happen? Something outside of me did that. And if that's the case, then God gets all of the glory. If you look back at chapter 2 again, back chapter 2, that first paragraph where we started, it's all for Christ, it's all for the glory in Christ. Verse 5 even when we were dead in our trespasses, made alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him, with Christ, and seated us with Him, Christ, in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might be, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Skip down to verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is all for Jesus. We are poster boys and girls of God's accomplishment in Christ. So rather than us puffing our chest and go, wow, I, I became a Christian. I figured it out. Why can't you? No, we can't do that. Why am I here? Why am I here? Why am I, how, do I, how am I able to see this mystery when before I couldn't? Because Christ Jesus, that's why. And therefore, he gets the glory. The crowns are tossed at his feet. He's the one. So when we look at a verse like this, it helps us understand. It gives us a, a picture of salvation. And if we appropriately understand salvation, we can better understand evangelism. What's happening when I'm talking to someone about the gospel and their ears are closed, or maybe they seem like they're open? What is happening in that moment? Am I convincing them? Am I, am I um, um, you know, loosening up the jar? So that they can just get the rest of the top off? Is that, is that what's happening here? Am I prying them loose? 
Am I convincing them? Am I coming with sharp enough arguments that they go, man, that is so irrefutable. I have to give my life to Christ. That's not what's happening. If someone gives their life to Christ, it's not so well. It's because God said, get up. And that's it. Now we go, oh my goodness, what does this have to do? How does this help us with evangelism? In fact, a couple of questions might naturally pop up. If God predestines the ones that He save, why evangelize? People say that a lot. If God has already, before creation, already selected the one, well, He's going to select them, and they're going to be in whether, whether I talk to them or not about the gospel. Why even talk about the gospel? First, because He says so. That's why. I'm not going to stand before a holy God and he says, go and tell people the gospel. Go and teach people, baptizing them, making them disciples, teaching them how to live and obey the commands that I gave you. And I go, well, you know what, God? Because you got it all figured out, I'm not going to listen to that. I'm going to go do it, first of all. Second of all, we need to understand that God uses human means to accomplish his end. In other words, he'll use that conversation you have with your friend. And when that friend gives us to the Lord. It's not, wow, your conversation over lunch was so slick they gave their lives to the Lord. No, but God used it. Just like I can't stand up here and make you believe anything that's in Scripture. I can't make you believe it. I'm banking on the Spirit to believe it, but I don't just, let's just cancel church and either the Spirit will teach you the truth of this or He won't. You know, He's going to do it or He doesn't. So let's not have church. If God really wanted you to be edified this morning and really get a a sense of His grace and how glorious His grace is, you wouldn't need a five-song worship set to feel that. God can just do it. So let's just cancel the worship set. You see how ridiculous that is. God commands us to do things because He uses those things that He commands us to do in order to work His purpose together. But when it happens, we can't say it's the things that we did that produced it. Only God can produce it. And that's a, some of you, man, I'm not sure that's different. That's a big difference. That is a big difference. Yes, God can teach you guys and shepherd you guys without me. I can just quit the mission and say, hey, God's going to do it. He'll just bring someone else in, and then I have to give account one day as to why I bailed. So he'll accomplish what he's going to accomplish, but we get to play a part in this tapestry. The blueprint that he laid out, he chose beforehand, But he also set the pieces in motion, and some of those pieces, that's you and me. Now, how this helps us in evangelism is when we talk to people, I don't have to think that all the pressure is on me. I have to know the the exact verses and have to be able to answer every question that any atheist ever has and and be able to answer with such such acuity, such sharpness that they can't refute it, and they have to drop on their knees right there in the middle of the subway, you know? And, and before they even finish their sandwich, they just, I just got them, I got them. No. But it also helps us understand that no matter how hardened someone seems, I should never give up on them. I'll only give up on them if I feel like, oh, they're impossible because I just can't convince them. That's right, I can't convince them. But they're dead just like the next person is dead. In fact, sometimes the people that are the most open to conversation are more closed than the people that just are just angry. Sometimes people, they're angry because they do believe it. They don't agree with the way God did something, and so they're mad at him. But you can't be mad at someone you don't believe in. And so there is a, a sense there's a faith there. They're just angry, and they don't know what to do with this anger. They can't put the pieces together. Why did he let this happen in my life? And sometimes those people, as angry as they are, 
as nasty as their language can get, they're closer, in a sense, humanly speaking, than the people like, yeah, we'll talk to you, I'll talk to a Buddhist, I'll talk to a Muslim. I love talking to people. Sometimes they're the ones that are harder. But rather than sitting back and putting a list of the people we know in our lives, and which ones are closer and let me go after them, we don't have to play that game. Go after the ones that you have an opportunity to talk with. Regardless of how close they look, how far they look from accepting the gospel, God has to do that action. God saves people, we only proclaim the message. Whether or not someone gives their life is not for me to try to prognosticate or try to you know, do uh, what is the over-under on this person giving their life to Jesus. You know? What are the odds? I don't have to worry about odds because there are no odds. God makes his decision. I have to obediently proclaim that message to those who don't know it. And we need to pray for them. And some of you say, well, if God predestines things, why pray for them? If God predestines that he's going to elect unto salvation, why pray for them? I reverse that question. If God doesn't do that and can't sovereignly overrule someone's deadness, then why pray, in, why pray then? In other words, if you come up to me and you say, Lucas, I got a co-worker, and this co-worker is an atheist, doesn't want anything to do with Jesus, but you said that he predestines people, so I feel like I, I shouldn't pray for them. And I'm saying, well, if God is able to choose him, then you better pray for him. But if he doesn't choose people, and he's just waiting for people to choose him, and he's like, I'm not sure what's going on. They're not choosing me. I don't know. When you pray to that God, that God's like, hey, <laughs> what do you want me to do? <laughs> but if God can sovereignly pluck someone out of the grave, then I can come to that God and say, God, I know person's in the grave. person trespassed, just like I was. Give them the same grace, God. Go in there up. I know you can do it, because only you can do it. Nothing else is going to get this person up out of that grave, up out of their deadness. They're stuck in their trespasses. Only you stepping in can do something. That's the God that we pray to. The God that says, yes, I'm going to do it. Now maybe in retrospect we look back and, oh, see, he, he already planned that, but I didn't know it in that moment. And God uses the prayers of his people to affect the change that he planned ahead of time because that was planned too. So we serve a God that's sovereign over evangelism. We don't serve a God that's hoping we do our best in evangelism because if we don't, then his plan fails. That's not the God we serve. We serve a God that has a plan in place and he's commanding us to take part of that plan and then we're going to be blown away when people give their lives to Christ and are like, my goodness, I would not have expected that. Isn't that how God works? You wouldn't have expected that and he does it anyway. That is amazing. That is grace. No matter how hardened someone is, they're never beyond God's ability to save. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, Scripture has difficult words and difficult passages that sometimes really blow us away and take us time to discuss and think and process. We thank you that we have growth groups to come together and, and unpack this a little bit more together and that we are in a community where we can ask tough questions and continue to unpack this and, and work through it. But God, it also reminds us that Scripture is not just a human document that was written by random people um, because there's no way that the depth of these truths would, would be there. And then the consistency between Ephesians 1 and 2 and the rest of Scripture, when these writings are centuries, even thousands of years apart, the consistency of thought and the, 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 the theology that runs throughout all of Scripture between Genesis and Revelation, it is just amazing 
to see that regardless of who the human author was, you orchestrated a perfect revelation of yourself. You've given us just enough to know. And in passages like this, sometimes just enough to know that uh, we have um, small minds. And it's difficult for us to wrap our minds around all of what you've revealed. But you've given us just enough to understand that salvation is completely by your merit, your work, your effort, your achievement, what you've attained in Jesus Christ and nothing to do with our work so that we can't boast, but you can. And you get all the glory. As we close in this song, we want to give you that glory uh, now. And we want to praise you for the awesome, um, undeserved act that you did in rescuing us unto yourself. Thank you, we pray in Jesus' name.